From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. A recipe could be very solid, very delicious, extremely delicious, but is missing something. And that thing is is what I would call otolenghi. It's hard to remember what we used to cook before Yotam Otolenghi burst into our culinary consciousness. His brand of colourful, vegetable-based food has transformed kitchens and tables world over. Born in Jerusalem, Yotam was set to pursue an academic career after completing a master's degree in comparative literature. However, at the age of 30, he decided to move to London to become a chef, and his future was rewritten. His London restaurants have become cult destinations. His cookbooks are on everyone's shelves. He's a TV host, he's one of the world's most famous gay dads, and he's one of the loveliest people you're ever likely to meet. Yotam Otolenghi, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. It's good to have you back. I know, it's been five years, I think, since I came here last, yeah. Yeah, well, you're always welcome. (laughs) So look, I would like to take you right back to the beginning of your life and the family that you were born into, which was quite sort of an unusual family if you think about where everybody was coming from and the diversity of that. Your dad was Italian, uh, your mum was German, but you were born in Jerusalem. How did that come about? How did they meet? Um, my parents are uh, first-generation immigrants, so they both came with their families to Israel, but it was Palestine then, in 1939, just before the war in Europe started, and but as little kids. So essentially they grew up in Israel as Israelis, and I think they met at university in Jerusalem in the 1950s when they were both students. Um yeah, I mean, it's it's an unusual story in the sense that uh, um, they have managed, both families managed to leave Europe just before the war. So uh, we don't have many ter- terrible Holocaust stories in our family. Uh, so, And that is actually really, really interesting because um, when I talk to my parents and I used to speak to my grandparents, uh, their kind of near escape from Europe, you know, last minute escape from Europe was was pretty remarkable mm. and forward thinking if you think about it uh, but and, but my parents grew up in a kind of in, a, in the in the in the country in its first years so your grandparents left their their countries germany and italy in anticipation of a war and in in anticipation of of persecution i wouldn't say that they had that clarity of vision uh, my i think they felt that it was time to go i don't know if they knew the war was coming but they felt it was getting very uncomfortable and they uh, thought it was necessary to to to, to leave and uh, paying a price because they were kind of established families, and one of the reasons why I think they could leave was because they were they were pretty middle class, so they could afford to go and do this big jump and mm-hmm. and, and come over to to Palestine. And why did they choose Palestine out of all of the countries that they could have gone to? My grandparents were Zionists, and, and I think they were Zionists in theory, before, <laughs> supporters from a distance. But uh, once it became uncomfortable in Europe, they decided to move. But from four grandparents, their siblings have gone all over. So some went to America, uh, some stayed in Europe, some came to Palestine. Uh, so they kind of they went into different different directions. And how did their politics evolve throughout the development of of Israel and Palestine? The family politics, yeah, or, you know, uh, their sort of broad politics. Did their Zionism soften, or, or, or? Uh, well, I mean, I, th- I um, well, for the generation of my grandparents, 
I would say that they were my they were pretty Zionists throughout, but they were quite on my mom's side. The German family were left wing Zionists, mm-hmm. so they were always kind of on the margin of of the of on the left margin margin of Zionism. Um, on my dad's side. They were not so political, I would say. I mean, I, I can't even tell you what they voted. Mm. Uh, they were just, you know, living their lives. At some point, from a Zionist, which is a is a way of defining yourself when you're outside Israel, the word Zionism Zionist become a little bit less relevant because you're there and you're kind of living your life. So uh, it's, a, it's something quite intentional. It's at the start of the process, but once you're there, it's it's just part of your daily life. And um, yeah, they were part of the project and mm. they did different things and I definitely the you know from the founding um, founders generation of the nation uh, my grandfather from my, on my mom's side was um, professor of mathematics and he was one of the people who set up the Weizmann Institute in, in Rehovot which is one of the universities in Israel and my grandmother on that side was uh, was in the Mossad, was in <laughs> was in the, in the in the secret services for many years, uh, so they were kind of formidable, uh, you know, very kind of established people. Yeah. So you were born in 1968 um, and grew up in Jerusalem in the 70s. What was Jerusalem like then? What was the Jerusalem of your childhood? I, I would say one thing: it was a, a it was a much less fraught place. Uh, I think soon after the 1967 war, in which um, Israel occupied the West Bank and East Jerusalem, uh, there was this kind of very there was a period. I, w- I call it the shock period uh, between, which included the 1970s and kind of half the 80s, where. People didn't know where this was actually going, and there was a, a kind of a naivety, especially on both sides. I think uh, believing things could go in all sorts of directions. So it was pretty, as far as I'm, I'm I experienced it. I'm sure Palestinians might have not experienced it in, exactly in such a way. It was pretty peaceful, mm. and we used to spend a lot of our weekends going to the West Bank, to East Jerusalem. I remember uh, going to Jericho, which was this heaven of beauty and and smells and flavors and I remember we had to one of the memories that I've got is is that Jerusalem is high up on the hills and Jericho is like it's below sea level isn't yeah, it yeah it's 100 meters under sea level so essentially you can take a bicycle and literally not even pedal all the way down down from Jerusalem at 800 meters high to Jer- to Jericho which is 100 meters under sea level and it was the most beautiful uh, bicycle ride through a desert uh, seeing Bedouin tents and then arriving in, in this oasis, which was full of of citrus fruit and bougainvilleas and beautifully flowering, it was it was almost tropical, and we'd sit out there in restaurants and street restaurants and have really delicious Palestinian food. What sort of things would you eat? Uh, I remember distinctly the smell of of grilled meats, lamb, but in particular, I'm sure that was the predominantly the meat that we would have, or maybe chicken. And a lot of beautiful salads and kind of the, the kind of the, what you imagine as a Palestinian or Palestinian or Lebanese meze, kibbe and salads and tahini salad, base salads and all sorts of wonderful, delicious, very vegetable heavy food, mm-hmm. um, and then desserts. You know, 
Palestinian honey desserts. And the, yeah, mm. full of syrups and, and aromatic flavors, etc. But luckily for us, we didn't have to do the climb back up to the hill, back to Jerusalem. My mom used to come with a car. We used to pack <laughs> the bike back in the car and take us back home to Jerusalem. That's very sensible. So in your home growing up, who did the cooking? Both my parents did the cooking. They're both good cooks. Um, my dad, with his Italian background, used to cook. As Italians love their food, right? Mm-hmm. And they love their food. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's very little kind of uh, scope for, um, for change or for innovation, I think, on that front. But my dad cooked brilliantly. He used to make... Uh, polentas and pastas and beautiful cooked vegetables and 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 still does. Um, my mother, uh, from her with a German background, uh, well, you can imagine more Central European food: cabbages and potatoes, quite a bit of pork, which was always a bit controversial. Where <laughs> growing up in Jerusalem, uh, but also she was a bit more um, adventurous. So she would get all sorts of cookbooks and try foods from all over the world. So both of them were really good cooks. And there was always an appreciation of good food, whether it was at home or we would go out or we would travel. I think I, I really benefited from them being both both uh, foodies. I mean, the term mm. didn't exist at the time, but they were very into food. I wish it didn't <laughs> exist now, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you when you learned to cook? Did your parents sort of teach you? Were you in the kitchen with them? Or? No, I wasn't that kind of boy. <laughs> a lot of people, t- many chefs describe their childhood as being apprentices for, to their pe- parents or grandparents. But in our house, uh, my parents did most of the cooking. And I, I used to watch and I was very into my food. I was extremely into my food. I loved eating and to the extent that they made fun of me that I was greedy and this and that. My birthday presents were to go to restaurants and get the foods that I, I could normally get. Uh, but I wasn't so into the actual cooking. Huh. Uh, I do remember, though, that I had a kid's cookbook that I cooked from on occasion and it had all sorts of funny things. One of the things I will never I will I, I, dishes I will never forget was... Um, I know the equivalent of a sausage roll, mm-hmm. uh, but it was kosher. And so you had to use a kind of a, a chicken sausage or a turkey sausage and wrap it in pastry, which was vegetable-based because uh, you couldn't mix, obviously, the dairy and the meat. And it was it was really weird. It was called Moses in the Basket. Oh. Yeah, I know. It was Sounds cannibalistic. Pretty, a little bit sinister. <laughs> uh, and I don't know who gave it that name, but uh, anyway, it was it was... Delicious, no doubt, but uh, yeah, I'll never forget that one. <laughs> um, but I didn't really engage in serious cooking until I left home and went to university, which was in the early 1990s. And I realized, I think, like many other students realize, is that if you're not going to cook for yourself, nobody will cook for you. <laughs> it's a harsh reality. It's banal, but it's true. So I, I, I uh, just started, luckily, my partner at the time, and I lived uh, very close to the one of the big markets in Tel Aviv. So I remember going and shopping and I, I actually, it was the first time I really engaged in food. I mean, rather than just eat it, I remember going to the Carmel Market in Tel Aviv and picking my vegetables and cheese. They had this amazing cheese counter with lots of fresh cheeses, you know, feta style mm-hmm. and getting all those and fresh pizzas and bring them home on Friday afternoon and cooking and getting friends over um, 
cooking for them. And the whole experience of feeding became such a nourishing experience. I thought like, oh, I've discovered something. I can make people really happy by, by you know, doing the thing that, things that I love doing. So that was, that was really an eye-opening moment, the, the ability to feed people and get that kind of recognition. Just going back to your childhood, you were, you were a middle child mm-hmm. um, with an older sister and a younger brother. What were the dynamics between the three of you growing up? <laughs> my sister is quite a bit older than than me and my brother, so she uh, was always kind of a slightly separate entity in our household. We, my brother and I, were about two years apart, and she was more than five years our senior. So we used to torment her quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were especially, I think, I was the lead on that. I was she was the kind of the older sister that didn't really want her, the, the the younger brothers, you know going into her room in her teenage years and, and rummaging through her stuff and knocking and barging in when her, she had friends over. I mean, I think we were pretty annoying little uh, monkeys. And my brother and I were very close. Uh, we spent a lot of time together as, as, kind of, as two boys often do. That was kind of the dynamic. It, it really shifted. I mean, at some point, my, my brother and I were... were drawn apart a bit when we reached our kind of mid-adolescence mm. and I actually became much even closer to my sister when she left home and went to university and I was becoming I was I don't know, 15 to 17 I became I, I went to spend time with her in Tel Aviv she had an apartment and it felt very grown up to go and spend uh, you know days there and we, we grew quite closer while my brother felt a little bit little and kind of <laughs> was left behind a bit you and your brother both did time in the Israeli Defence Forces, you in intelligence and he in a fighting unit. And that, of course, ended in real tragedy. Yeah. How did your brother die? Uh, My brother died in an accident where what you call friendly fire when one unit was not informed about a drill and uh, his unit was attacking them um, and the soldier was just not informed that this is going to happen. He just thought it was a real, a proper attack, and he just defended himself and killed my brother. And it was um, it was a, a big deal because uh, things like that are not supposed to happen in peacetime. And obviously, it really kind of threw our lives to pieces immediately. He was a beautiful young man in his. Uh, early 20s and it was just like that from from one day to the next. How did your family react? Uh, Everyone very differently. Um, I suppose my sister and my mother were mourning in a more in a particular in a familiar feminine way they would talk about him quite a lot and over the years and still do. Uh, also with his girlfriend, he had a girlfriend that remained very close to us, and uh, and my bro- my father and I, I think we closed up in a in a in a kind of a masculine, typical way of dealing with death, which is not really talking. I guess everybody did what they needed to do, and um, and I guess that it's still painful, and we still have yearly memorial days for him when we all get together and 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 talk about him um, it's just part of our lives now really has it influenced your decisions in any way I, maybe inadvertently i was me being a young gay man 
and I know I wasn't completely out to my family, not to my dad when my when my brother died. Uh, it made my existence even more difficult uh, because I always felt that I was bearing quite a lot of responsibility for my parents' well-being on my shoulders, uh, which is already my quite my tendency as a middle child to take responsibility <laughs> over the well-being of everybody around me. I, I think that increased this pressure. I don't. I wouldn't go as far as to say that that's why I left uh, in 1995. I went. I moved to Amsterdam, and I haven't lived in Israel since. Uh, but I stayed very close to my parents and to my family, and uh, and eventually completely came out. And there was none of that in between us. But I think it probably was a bit easier to take that distance mm. and move away for a while, as I did. Um, about, I would say, four years or three or four years after he, he died. Your sister, I read, has described your family as one of, quoting here, um, one of high unstated expectations. <laughs> I think that's pretty accurate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you you went had studied in Tel Aviv, but then you um, you went to Amsterdam. Why? Mm. What was it about Amsterdam that attracted you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I my boyfriend at the time and I just decided. So I was about to finish my masters. I studied literature and philosophy at, at the university, and I I I was about to complete my my studies. I still had to write my dissertation, but I could do that anywhere. And we just decided, I've, I've never taken proper time off. So as soon as I finished my military service, I went to university and we just wanted to take a bit of time off. So we moved to Amsterdam, which without, in a kind of an aimless kind of, not, not really knowing exactly where we're, what we're doing. And we rented an apartment and I was, had a little desk in the attic where I did my dissertation. But the years in Amsterdam are, are kind of we, a weird couple of years because on the one hand I had that mission to finish my dissertation but on the other hand I had a lot of free time mm. so we used to go a lot we did a lot of clubbing and going out and Amsterdam obviously is notorious for for its drugs and all the rest so it was kind of like I've kind of sunk these two years I did manage to do something obviously to write a dissertation which is I did manage to apply myself to a certain degree, but I, I didn't really do that much over those two years. But it was great fun, I have to say. I can imagine. <laughs> Amsterdam in the 90s really was. And what did you do your dissertation in? My department was the comparative literature department, but I was more interested in philosophy and art. So I did my, my dissertation about representation in, in, uh, in art, particularly in photography. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to figure out or trying to as, rummage through all sorts of discussions about how, what does a photographical representation of reality do. And this was part of this discussions in, that have been going on uh, about photography since its inception mm. in the 1830s and carried on. Uh, to I would say to the 1980s, in which people couldn't quite figure out what a photograph was, and if it could be art, and what an artist brought it, to a photograph. Yeah, and there was kind of like it was almost treated initially like a natural object, like a almost like a um, something like an imprint of of an object on its on another object, like a fossil. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, so the mediation of the artist, of the photographer, was what we were discussing. How much of an impact does the artist or the photographer has over a picture and whether it's a natural object or it's more like a drawing in which you kind of, there, there's definitely not nothing kind of natural about it. And that was kind of interesting, but I think as I was doing my work, I also felt that it's extremely esoteric. I felt that I was just re- writing to myself and my supervisor. I mean, people, literally. Yeah, that's pretty much the experience <laughs> of writing a dissertation. I, yeah, and I remember when I was when I finished my dissertation finally, and I thought it was very good, and you know, I did what I needed to do, like a good boy. I completed my my studies. Did I remember the exact? place where I printed four or five copies of my dissertation in, a, in Amsterdam on one of the beautiful canals. And I went and got all these copies and, you know, they smelled from print and it was just, you know, it was wonderful. And I sent a copy to my supervisor and one to my parents and a couple of more to friends and family. And to this day, I'm sure that nobody has read it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to assume that my supervisor read it because she gave me a mark. But I think nobody else in this planet read it. And that was the result of two years of pretty hard work. And I think this was the this is the kind of the crux of the matter why I left academia and moved to food because it's like the two opposite of the spectrum mm-hmm. or in terms of the immediate gratification of feeding people as opposed to writing dissertation for people. Right. And and the, and I just felt like this is just not giving me what I need, you know. Sure. <laughs> but you know, you do um, you do style all of your own. Photographs for your your books. Yeah. Do, do, do you draw on any of your studies when you're when you're thinking about that? Well, indirectly, I guess I do. I think I, I, I'm a firm believer that everything that you've done makes you a rounder and more interesting person, and that ref- obviously affects what everything else that you do. Uh, so I, I I definitely don't regret going to university and studying, uh, but for a fraction of a second, I did consider this as a career, and I think. It just it just wasn't for me, uh, very clearly, and and I re- I do remember actually that one of the first jobs that I had in the kitchen was as a pastry chef. It was while well, before I was even being paid, I was just in a a lower apprentice in a in a restaurant, and I remember that I the chefs I had like a couple of hours, and I just tried to make this brownie. And uh, I made a brownie which is swirled together with a blondie mixed in it and, and, and made, it was very 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just sent it out to the waiters to just try and tell me what they thought. And they were all, all you know, full of praise. So they said, I remember some saying, this is one of the best brownies that I've ever had. And the contrast between the reaction of, about something that I've just spent 20 minutes making as opposed to something that took two years <laughs> was so stark <laughs> that I thought I can never go back to university. <laughs> so, I mean, before you were making brownies, you'd moved to London actually to study at Le Cordon Bleu. I did, yeah. Well, actually, this was while I was at the Cordon Bleu. This was the kind of the evening jobs that I looked for while right, I was right. studying during the, you know, learning at the Cordon Bleu during the day. Were there reasons beyond instant gratification of praise that made you <laughs> lean towards food over any of the other things that you could have pursued? Uh, not that not that instant gratification and praise is isn't good enough. enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I found um, cooking a way for me to escape a very busy mind because mm. uh, I do have a very busy mind, and I and and university or journalism, which were the two careers that I was considering at the time, didn't give me that 
break. You know, I just kept on working with my head too much, and I had and I found it really quite exhausting. And I remember the one what I enjoyed about cooking is the fact that I could just switch off. Mm-hmm. I could switch off whether I was cooking for a dinner for friends that came over or whether I was doing mise en place in a restaurant for service. It wasn't. I mean, these are. I mean, a restaurant could be a very stressful environment, but it's stressful in a very different way. It's very physical. Uh, it's very intense. But once you go home, you leave it all behind. You know, yeah. the day's over, which is the exact opposite of all sorts of other careers that were in my kind of horizon. So, so yeah, that was really the attraction, the idea that I could do something that I love, that I could do something physical, and I didn't pay the same price of, uh, you know, over overdoing it in my head. Okay. And, I do, I, and I still feel like that. The kitchen is where I find a lot of uh, joy with. Sometimes on a Sunday night... When the kids had gone to bed, and Carl, my husband, goes up to watch TV, I, I go and I make pancakes or crepes and freeze them for the week and put them in the freezer. So the kids, I give it to the kids sometimes for breakfast, and I put the music on or I put a podcast on and I just make crepes mm-hmm. for like three hours, and I find it the most re- relaxing things I can think I can do. I think cooking for, cooking as relaxation is something that is really underappreciated. I'm, I'm wondering whether that's going to be sort of wrapped into the mindfulness movement that we're seeing at the moment. You know, well, it should because mm. and and I, and I've, I've actually um, I mentioned this example of making crepes because that is something that I can do every every Sunday or every other Sunday. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm not cooking dinner for friends that needs pr- preparation. All I need was my is my flour, my eggs and my milk and uh, and my frying pan and then I just have a great time just doing something very repetitive but with in, with ingredients that I love and I can smell and I'm preparing, feeding the kids for the whole mm, week. Mm. It's a really nice thing. I think there's a cookbook there, Yodan. <laughs> <laughs> Mindful crepe making. <laughs> yeah. Um, so having having finished at Cordon Bleu um, and done various, you know, w- worked in various kitchens around London, you met um, Sami Tamimi um, and that was really a kind of pivotal friendship for you, right? Yeah, so Sami Tamimi, I met him in London in 1998 and uh, and I was worked in a few restaurants and I specialized in in patisserie so I became a pastry chef and um I was I wasn't quite sure where I was looking I was in between jobs and I was looking for someone to ex- hone my, in on my experiences experiences as a pastry chef and learn more. And I came across, I was actually just riding on a street on my, on my scooter one day and I saw this beautiful window with wonderful looking cakes and brownies and, and tarts and I thought, I want to work in this place. It was called Baker and Spice. And I literally just knocked on the door It was and, and walked in and I, as, as soon as I walked in, I saw even how much more beautiful it was than just came through, through the window. And uh, Sammy, whom I didn't know at the time, was there and he was cooking. He was doing. He was in charge of the savory food. And I said to him, "Oh, I would like to, you know, drop my CV here because I'm. I would love to work here." And he said, "Yeah, you can give it to me." And we just got chatting. And he really quickly transpired that we were both from Jerusalem. That he was a Palestinian. Uh, that we were both born in the same year and had a lot in common. He was also gay. And I mean, there was just we just had tons in common. But we haven't really met up until that moment, although our lives were really kind of 
a, a massive parallel. Well, you must have come close to meeting dozens of times, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, mm. because he moved to, from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv around about the same time as I did, and we had people that we knew in common. But no, we haven't met, and uh, so so we we met then in London. And I got my job there eventually. I was uh, doing the pastries. He was in charge of the cooking the food. It was a beautiful place. in, in Ottolenghi in London is, is very much inspired and modeled by mm. on that place that we used to work in. And, um, and we formed kind of a bond, a, a friendship. And later on when I was... I started looking for to open Ottolenghi while... Sammy was still working at Baker and Spice mm. with Noam Barr, who is my ex-partner. Uh, when we were ready to open, I, I approached Sammy and said, oh, maybe you'd join us. And he joined us as a third partner. That kind of became the founding group of, of Otolenghi. And very much the, the kind of dialogue that Sammy and I have had over the years, over food and through food and and eating and having great meals in different places has kind of formed the, the, the nature of the, of the business. Aside from its sort of, you know, obvious success and all of the things that have been observed and written about the sort of beauty of the two of you coming together to do this from sort of a political perspective as well, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot that's been said about that. But I'm interested in, in how London gave you the opportunity for this to yeah. happen. You know, I mean... You, you were saying earlier that your dad's Italian heritage made him quite rigid about <laughs> what, what he thought was, you know, good cooking and not good cooking. But the UK, you know, I mean, it does have a food identity, but its food identity is pretty grim. Um, yeah. did, did that give you a freedom to be able to bring in, you know, a bit of Italian cultural heritage, the kind of, you know, Jerusalem sort of yeah. Middle Eastern kind of influences, all of that? Did, 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 did opening in London give you a freedom to, to experiment with with the food that you made? I often say that I think I was extremely lucky to have, have landed in London. I always found a misrepresentation of, of uh, British uh, culinary identities. I don't think it's that British food is dull or, or bad by definition, but there is a certain willingness with, of the Brits, which is very much part of the, of the British identity, to kind of uh, go, go, uh, go along with a, with a joke, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I'm not sure that other n northern European cuisines are so much better, but the Brits are just fine to kind of just take it on the chin and go on and move on and just say, yeah, well, it's pretty crap, but, you know, we do other things really well. <laughs> and when we did open Sami and I uh, in, in the early 2000s in London, I mean, there couldn't be a better place because that there's a, the level of acceptance and curiosity and interest and well-traveled people mm -hmm. uh, would and and no show, no chauvinism in the sense of especially not food chauvinism in the sense that you would find in other places enable us to both thrive be successful and really be kind of get a big hug by the establishment You and your taster, Claudine Bolstridge, who, who <laughs> tastes all of your foods in the job that I'm sure is envied by millions, um, you've said that you use otolenghi as an adjective. Like, yeah, that's really otolenghi. What, what do you mean by that? 
well, I've had to learn what it means for other people because to take that distance and be able to understand what people expect is not something that you can do just by, you know, it's not an introspective activity. So I actually, over the years, through Claudine and our conversation, so Claudine, I'll, I'll explain, lives in Wales, a fair, a fair distance from London, and tests every recipe that I, that I publish. She gets the recipes pretty much when... I'm happy with them, but I'd like to a home cook to try them. And Claudine uh, tests the recipes on her lovely family, on her children, on her husband, and her parents-in-law, everybody that lives around her in that little uh, Welsh community. And uh, and she knows what she has understood. She has understood very well because she has cooked every recipe what it what it means uh, to be an Ottolengi recipe. And sometimes, and I know her now too. A recipe would be could be very solid, very delicious, extremely delicious, but doesn't is missing something, and that thing is is what I would call otolengi. That's uh, it could be anything. It could be a twist. It could be a, a surprise. It could be a combination that nobody thought uh, would work. Uh, it could be something that tastes really, really good, but gives you a little makes you think. Just always something that is just slightly out of the ordinary. Uh, I remember once um, we were testing this recipe for a pea soup and it was just the best pea soup. It was just a vibrant green and delicious and was just so good. And we were having it, I said, like, that's just so worth publishing. And then someone said, but it's not very Ottolenghi. And I said, but, what? but it's just really good. And I, said, and I understood exactly what that means. It would maybe disappoint someone that wants uh, a, an extra, an accent or something unusual. And we made these really beautiful um, croutons that were based on goat's cheese and rolled up bread that you deep fried and sliced. And those went in and immediately it just kind of changed the whole management. Yeah, we ostolengified it. (laughs) A lot of people talk about um, culture and food, but one of the things that doesn't get discussed so much is class, right? Yeah, interesting. Um, Yeah, You've, you've said, and I'm quoting you here, we're in an age where people are using food more than in the past to define their social standing. It just happens to be food now, but it'll be something else in the future. But I'm interested in, in the way that food can be kind of wrapped up in, in what class you're from. And, and, yeah. and do you think that that's something that does happen now and might be happening more? I think, there, I think it manifests itself differently now. So, I mean, people of different classes have always eaten differently because it all depends on what you can afford to eat and what's available to you. But um, these days, what I find is that certain classes, you know, the the chattering middle upper classes, have uh, embraced cooking and other classes, the, the, the people that are not as affluent or not as, as ver- well versed in the conversation, um, Cook less, mm. so it's not about it's not about what you know how you, how you eat. It's about the nature of the food that you eat, whether you cook to yourself or not. And I find that division really disturbing because, uh, especially in the UK, I know in South in Europe it's different. I'm not quite sure what this how it works in Australia. More than fifty percent, I think I've just read read recently that fifty or fifty one or fifty two percent of the food consumed. Is prepared food, and only mm-hmm. the other, and the other fifty percent or forty nine percent is uh, cooked in kitchens. Is cooked in kitchens. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that is a big divider. And that is a massive divider. And to be able to make people cook would be for me the, the, the great equalizer. If, if everybody cooked, then we would all eat pretty much similarly because food is cheaper to make these days than it's used to be in the past. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's a real shame that people don't cook, not because there's anything wrong with ready meals. I'm, I would have one once in a while. But it's much more about the idea that there's something which, which is within your achievement. It's mm. a skill. It's a life skill. It's a bit like a sport or anything else. It's something that it's great to have because it's part of life. I mean, and I think the more we distance ourselves from the real world, the more detached we are. And I think and, and cooking is definitely something of the real world. Yeah, I mean, it's a very useful skill. It's like driving a car or something, you know, it's... Yeah, and I think as people, you know, with our devices and what we are, kind of become a bit. We we become detached. I mean, all these degrees of separation from from our planet are manifest themselves in so many ways in our reality. And cooking is one of them. And I would love to people to have to cook not because they have to, and not because they, they someone is telling them to do that, but just because it's a wonderful thing to be able to do. Mm. So you've spoken about cooking for your family. Um, how did you meet your husband, Carl? Carl and I met in a very gay way. <laughs> we met at the gym one time, and uh, we just got talking. Actually, we met we met at the gym, but actually we started talking at the bookshop underneath the gym. He was traveling I heard somewhere. a rumor you met in the self-help section. Well, he was shop. in the self-help section. He was about to travel somewhere. He was working in a flight attendant, and, and I just approached him and got started talking to him and and he was browsing through one of the books and yeah and we got talking and that was in 2000 so you know a long time ago 20 mm. years ago almost mm. and now you have two little boys yeah we have max who's six years old and flynn three years old so you've written about how they came to be max and flynn you went through a variety of routes as gay parents to to bring Max and Flynn about, mm -hmm. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just just sort of explaining to us what that path was. <laughs> sort of, sort of. Yeah, you know. I, I'll have to take to make a very long story shorter. Yes. <laughs> uh, but so Carl and I, I mean, at first it was really very much my agenda to to have kids. I've I've always wanted. I for a long time I thought I wouldn't be able to, but I had a good childhood and I did want kids. And the first attempts at making that happen were through. A, what we call co-parenting arrangements where I met women who wanted to have families which were made out of two families, extended families. And I thought that was a good solution to our, to our um, desire. And there were two arrangements. Once one was with a couple and then was, another one was with, with, with a friend. And uh, none of them worked, but for, for different reasons. I mean, with the first couple... Um, it was a, a lesbian couple. We just couldn't figure out how we actually want to do it. We started scrambling over a child that we didn't even have. Mm -hmm. It was like a divorce uh, settlement <laughs> over kids that didn't even exist with visiting rights and all the rest. And uh, the other time we tried to get pregnant, but we couldn't. We couldn't get pregnant um, with a friend. With a friend. Mm -hmm. And what I found really interesting through the process is that I realized that um, in some ways the notion that we have to have a woman involved in, in the bringing about of our, of our kids and raising our kids was uh, slightly um, off, the, off the 
old perception of what gayness means. And I think for, for a very long time, I thought I've, our kids would be missing an aspect or a part or something if they were not being raised by a woman as well as a man. And, uh, and, and, I, and it, I, now I almost look at it almost not, I, it's, shame is a big word, but I'm a little bit embarrassed about it because I think, why did I, why did Carl and I not think that we could just raise a kid on our own as two men because now we do it and when we have it and it feels very natural I think we do a good job at it like any other couple raising children but at the time I thought there was something insufficient about our us, you well, know. you were buying into some pretty powerful gender stereotypes that are cross-cultural and, and ancient. A, a, extremely ancient and I think still very prevalent and you know the mum concept is a very strong concept and and yeah, but but in a sense, I was I, I was I feel slightly embarrassed to almost to to say it to say it out loud because I you always think you're totally liberated and you know you you're out of those you don't think like that as someone who's come out and lives their life as they think they should. But in a sense, I guess I have internalized certain perceptions and I did think that two game two men are not just good enough for a child. Um, but then we. We 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 went down the surrogacy route, mm-hmm. and we had a surrogate and a, an egg donor in America, two separate women, and uh, we had Max in 2013 and Flynn in 2015, and it's been an incredible journey in the sense that we first realized that we can do it on our own, and then we and then we we did it on our own, and we discovered that it's just it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do, and it's also I'm very proud of our our little family. I think we're doing it. We're doing well. <laughs> and what's their relationship with food? I would have loved to say that they are the most adventurous eaters, and they have <laughs> lemon, you know, preserved lemon for breakfast. But uh, that is not quite the case. I think on the spectrum, they're somewhere in the middle. So they they could be pretty good. Uh, you know, they eat vegetables. Uh, they love broccoli. They hate tomatoes. They never touch a, a you know a raw tomato. They'll only eat it if it's cooked. Uh, they take always pick out parsley or anything green out of their food, uh, but you know, but they're ha- very happy to to eat most of the things that we put on the table. It's kind of we're somewhere in the middle. I mean, I, I the one thing that I'm very happy about is that I Carl and I think we managed to take the anxiety out of the equation when it comes to the kids if they eat even if they not and if they don't want to eat then they don't. Uh, if they do, we try not to put pressure on them. Sometimes we do, but <laughs> more often than not, we don't. Sounds like an extremely normal family. <laughs> well, Gyoto Matalengi, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you thank so much for coming in and having this chat. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Gyotam Otolenghi came to the Opera House in 2019 to talk about his cookbook called Simple. You can watch the video of his talk at youtube.com slash ideas at the house. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastering and additional editing by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan with research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Roth. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.